Welcome back to The Breaking Zone with Alex, May, and Dave. Uh, and it is the dead of winter, and all three of us live in a northern snow-covered state. Today, we're going to talk about how to survive winter as a motorcyclist. And I know like some people live in San Diego where the asphalt's perfect and it's always 68 degrees with a light breeze off the ocean, and we are not those people. Must be nice. Must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys struggle getting through winter? Yes. Yes. Hundred <laughs> percent. We've always called it uh, PMS. We're, we're suffering with PMS, which is a uh, parked motorcycle syndrome. That's good. And you get grumpy, right? And your spouse will notice, yep. like, man, I wish you could just go for a motorcycle ride because you're making me crazy. <laughs> you know. It's been driving May so crazy. She changed her hair color. Yeah, I love yeah. the color, by the way. For Thank those you. who are watching online, it looks really good. Thank you. So I thought we would talk about things we can do to kind of get through winter as a motorcyclist. And we haven't forgot about the contest. We will announce the winner of the trivia contest a little bit later and we'll have a new trivia question. So make sure you stick around for that. Let's just start talking about things to do. Now, Alex, what are some things that that people can do to kind of stay sharp on their riding skills when we're not actually able to get on the motorcycle? Uh, so there are actually quite a few things, right? Um, and the way we can kind of think about this is we break down motorcycling into component parts, like the skill of motorcycling, right? So you have the mental skills, you have like the physical manipulation skills, the control skills, um, and those kind of things. Obviously the, the one thing we can't do without an actual motorcycle is practice, you know, control manipulation and, and getting that feedback, um, you know, feeling that front tire is just loading, that kind of thing, feeling the, the G force is pressing us, uh, against the bike cornering and, and that's okay. Like we can get back to that in the spring, but we can focus on the mental portion. We can focus on our eye movement and focus on, you know, smooth inputs with everything else we're doing. Um, one of our, you know, lead instructors, Kyle Wyman's kind of said it best, how you do anything is how you do everything. So as long as we're really prioritizing and putting our minds on on everything we're doing, we can actually learn quite a bit and improve quite a bit in the off season. Um, a great example is you know something super simple. You you go to a grocery store and you'd probably sit at home going, "What the hell are you talking about? Go to a grocery store to work on motorcycles, <laughs> right?" So a very good friend of mine, Scott Ryberic, who I'm sure you know very well as well as well, Dave said, you know, one of the things he does is he'll be in a grocery store and pushing the cart around and practicing his eye movement, like getting his eyes up and scanning back as quickly as he can uh, to the end of the aisle and pushing the shopping cart around as if he's at a racetrack, um, you know, trying to you know, <laughs> apex some of the corners and things like that at the end of the aisles. <laughs> but really, it's just all about his eyes and, and focusing on, you know, what's next. Uh, that's something that, you know, I've actually been struggling with quite a bit is... I'll get my eyes up and out and then I won't remember to do it the second time or the third time or the fourth time. Um, so I have to remind myself what's next. There's actually a piece of tape uh, on my race bike that Nick I not put there that literally says what's next. Uh, so just, you know, focusing on that mental aspect first and foremost is a tremendous way to improve as a rider. It kind of falls into the, you know, one of the other champ schools, things I love, which is don't crash your coffee cup. Right? right. Like you can, you can, you know, you start being sloppy. You start thinking about, oh, let's be a little bit more mindful about. Oh, Dr. Matt Tolstoy. Um, proprioception. Proprioception. That's my new favorite word. Yeah. Where am I in space? And that's not a science fiction reference. That's a, it's, you know, how we move, what our body is doing, what, how much pressure are we putting onto things, right? Like how much, how tight am I squeezing the cup? Proprioception. Something we can think about all the time. That's something I struggle with a lot because you should see the bruises on my arms and shoulders and knees from running into corners. So <laughs> we talk, uh, you mentioned earlier about don't crash the coffee. May, how often do you tell me not to crash my coffee or stop crashing my coffee? All the time. And you tell it to me too. Uh, when we're doing something too fast or not paying attention, don't crash this, don't crash that. You know, don't crash your wrench. You just threw it across the garage. Good job. And for those of you guys that are listening that, that don't understand what Don't Crash Your Coffee is, it's kind of this simple um, way to think about focus and putting your focus on things which you're, that you're doing. So if you're you know, walking up to your keyboard and you're going to put your password in to log in and check your email and you just ham fist your keyboard because you didn't have your, your brain on it, right? You weren't focused on what you're doing. Password gets rejected. Hey, I crashed my password. 
Am I hurt? No. Is it kind of frustrating? Yeah. But the more we can train ourselves to be in that moment and focus on those little things, the more it's going to pay off when what we're doing can hurt us. We talk a lot sometimes applying how our writing techniques, applying our writing techniques to how we drive an automobile. Now, Champ School does something really cool. They're like The first time you do a Champ School, they kind of orient you to the track by loading everybody up into minivans and turning some of the most insanely paced laps in the world in a minivan full of students. And you got the benefit of the minivans. May, when you went to a school, what were we using? Well, we used minivans for a couple times, and then we had uh, like station wagons or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, was, the 10-pack vans, those. The 15-passenger <laughs> vans. Yeah. yeah. They're very listy. Yes, very those tippy. are hilarious. Anyway, oh, sorry. Great. But uh, the, the question kind of comes in, can we practice some of our riding techniques while we're driving a car? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so... Was it last year? May and I went down uh, to Utah Motorsports Campus, and we just, you know have a, a Kia station wagon. Granted, it's the Stinger, but it's still a Kia station wagon, right? Um, so we went down to UMC. It was right before like an awards banquet for uh, the Utah Sport Bike Association, and we said, "Hey, you know, let's let's just go do a track day in the car." Like it's not prepped. It's, it's got street tire, street pads, whatever. Um, and May went out and drove, and so May talk us through a little bit about. Does motorcycle technique translate to cars and vice versa? Absolutely. Um, I mean, everything you do on the motorcycle from the way you brake to uh, the way you turn in, you can think of um, lean angle like steering wheel tilt. So this is lean angle in a car. Um, so you do the same thing. When you want to go into a corner, you use the brakes to control your radius. Um, you don't use a lot of steering wheel because that's a good way to spin out. Um, the other thing is you find yourself looking out the side windows of the car instead of just looking out the windshield. And it's the same way that you turn your head when you're looking through a corner, you look through the side of the car, you don't look through the front. So a lot of the things that you do on a motorcycle, you don't think about it, but you do it in a car as well. Yeah. It's, it's a phenomenal training tool, right? So we, we like to call them our four wheel practice motorcycles, um, because at the end of the day, that's what's what it is. You know, just like May was saying, like steering wheel angle is lean angle. So if we're out driving around, right, we're getting on the freeway, we're getting off the freeway and we're getting to the end of that corner, we just throw a bunch of steering wheel angle at it. Well, that's us, you know, the equivalent of throwing a bunch of lean angle on a motorcycle, right? So we're just adding a bunch of risk at that point. Like think about, you know, in terms of a traction circle or hundred points of grip, kind of the same concept, right? We, uh, at the school, we talk about in, uh, grip in terms of hundred points, so for those of you guys who are not familiar with the grip, uh, 100, 100 points of grip, basically think of each tire has up to 100 points or 100% of available grip. And that uh, is divided between two different forces. So in the front tire, we have brake pressure and lean angle, right? So if I'm at 99 points of brake pressure, I still have one point available for lean angle. Uh, in the rear, we think about the opposite. We think about, you know, Brake pressure, sure, as we're going into the corner, but really more focused on acceleration or throttle and lean angle in the rear on the rear tire. Um, and again, you know, if I have you know 40 points of lean angle, I can still use up to 60 points for throttle. It's all about you know how we manage um, the first five percent and last five percent of the load. It has to be smooth. That way, we can really take advantage of that scale. Um, in a reduced grip environment, like in the winter, right? We still have all hundred points, but instead of being up here with a scale, that scale comes down. So, you know, in a car, so we might have, you know, 15 degrees of steering wheel angle, but if it's super icy out, that may be our 99 points of, of quote unquote lean angle, right? Or steering angle for the day. We can still use that one point of break. So it's all about, you know, trading these forces off and playing around with them. It's all the same concepts. It's just, um, in a car, you kind of have a bit of a safety net, uh, as it were, because you have massive tires with huge amounts of grip. You've got a protective cage around you. You've got airbags, you've got seatbelts, you've got all these other things. Um, so you can practice all these things. If you coming, if you're coming into a corner and just snapping on a bunch of steering wheel angle, well, you just blew through that first 5%. And now all of a sudden you're wondering why your, your front tires are pushing or you're losing traction up front or you're spinning. 
is because you weren't respecting that weight transfer, right? That first 5% is all about weight transfer. And in the car, we need to get that weight transferred up to the front if we're going to be turning because that's the wheels we're asking to turn us, right? So when your guys are doing like the, the car laps at Champ School, you are effectively trail braking exactly as you would on your motorcycle, although it's you are decreasing your brake pressure as the steering wheel angle increases. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's all the same stuff. We're, you know, we're, we're playing with those points. So as we're coming into a corner, you know, if we have to slow down a lot, we're you know, hard on the brakes in a straight line because, again, that's we're using the maximum amount of points for, for braking. And then as we're starting to add the steering wheel angle, we have to give up that brake pressure because the tires, you can't go over that 100 points, right? We, we have a limit. And how we find that limit is by sneaking up on it. So high grip environment, a racetrack, hot tires in a car, um, cool. But that limit is going to be different for a 911 GT3 RS versus a Chrysler Pacifica minivan, right? And so that's really kind of what we're playing with and we're demonstrating is these techniques work no matter what you're in. And that's, that's why we teach them because they work regardless of what vehicle you're driving. They work regardless of conditions. They work regardless of context at the end of the day. And it's all about context. And if you really want to know whether a technique is sound, how many different contexts can you put that technique in? If it works in the majority or all contexts you can think of, fantastic. If it only works in this one specific context, say, you know, 15 miles an hour, this will work in any condition, any roadway condition, but only up to 15 miles an hour. Okay, cool. But what about all the other possible contexts that you can put in this? What if you're going 35 miles an hour and it's raining? It doesn't work. So in, in essence, we are still driving the car, riding the car by direction, right? We are still slowing until we get the, the car turned and then adding acceleration as we take away lean angle, take away steering input. So we can really kind of cement a lot of these concepts, which are not necessarily easy to master every time we're operating any kind of, anytime we're moving forward, right? Even with your shopping cart. It's super simple sport, but it's exceedingly difficult to do well. Um, but May, you know, I, I know since you started riding motorcycles, um, you've been paying a lot of attention to how the car and actually your body reacts when you're driving. So mm -hmm. talk us through a little bit of that. Well, I'd say probably my favorite drill. Um, I call it a drill. It's just something I do every day now without thinking about it are limousine stops. So in a car, I think that's probably one of the best ways to train smooth inputs because you can, you know, on my way home from work, I have a lot of stop signs and they're on 50 mile an hour roads. So I'm going fast and then I have to stop for the stop sign. So I brake late. I brake smoothly. When I get to the stop sign, I have to let off the gas or let off the brake pedal so that I don't have a jolt when I stop. And I love doing that. Now... We recently put race brakes on the car, so those limousine stops have gotten a lot harder, but I am very excited to see how that translates to the bike this spring when I start riding again, because I've had to really, really pay attention and work on my limousine stops, because they're so much harder now. <laughs> so, May, what's the, what's the similarity like between you know feeling that jerk in the car from a rough stop and feeling the same thing on a bike? Well, it's, I mean, yes, I'm stopping, but the same thing would be like coming out of a corner on a bike. So if you just let go of your brakes mid corner, that front fork is going to rebound and you're going to feel it. It's not going to feel good. So smoothly letting off that brake pedal teaches you to do that with your hands, because if you can do it with your foot, you can do it with your hands. You have a lot more manipulation ability with your fingers than you do your feet. So teaching you that you're going to let off your brake leather lever a lot smoother in mid corner and you're not going to upset the bike. So that translation is, I mean, it's amazing. You have to do it or you're not going to have fun at a track day or just riding your bike in general. You know, we were talking about this too. It's how hard it is to learn feel, right? It's, it's one of the problems like with video games or whatever there, there, there's no feel. But in a car, right, when you feel how nice it, it feels when you ease off that brake lever pedal, brake pedal, as opposed to easing off that brake lever 
in, in at the end of our trail breaking event, right? Like it's, you start to learn what that feels like regardless. And, and there is tremendous value in perfecting our feel because that's something that can't really be taught. It's the only way you can learn that is through experience, feel, right? And so, uh, a couple things come to mind with that. Uh, one, Scott Redding actually was just in an article. Um, I forget what publication it was. It might've been Road Acing World um, where he basically said, look, you know, for motorcycles, the simulators are kind of useless because it's not a car. You can't just simulate the feel of a thing. You can't simulate, you know, the the fork compression. You can't simulate that that rear wheel you know, getting spun up behind you. Um, so he doesn't really necessarily see the value in them, for, specifically for motorcycles. Um, you know, the other thing we're thinking about with with feel and and kind of how we're training it is, uh, I remember Daniel Ricardo did an interview uh, a couple of years ago about you know, how he drives his car um, on a daily basis. I mean, Formula One driver, just one of the best drivers in the world. Um, and he says that what he really thinks about is, especially, you know, if he has a passenger, is just being as smooth as possible. He said, as a driver, you have a lot of control over um, your own body by being able to physically hold the steering wheel and because you know what you're planning on doing next. But your passengers don't have that luxury. So if you drive around for the passenger's benefit, or at least pretending you have a passenger in the vehicle and for their benefit, you're going to go a lot smoother because you're going to be focused more on, you know, loading the tires before you work the tires, that kind of thing. Smoother is faster. Is that how it went? Yeah. Because everybody, everybody says like slow, slow is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. No, slow is still slow. Just be smooth. Now you mentioned doing um, simulations. So in my opinion, simulations are good for two things and two things only. One, learning a new track. And two, eye movement. And that's something that we do in the winter to train our eyes is to, we do the, what is it? Which game is it, Alex? Uh, Assetto Corsa. Yeah. So it's a car. It's not a motorcycle simulation, but it's a great way to look at what you're doing because we sit really close to the TV. So it's you have to look. Yeah. So when we can't go out and ride and enjoy ourselves, we sit in our living room and train our eyes. Yeah. Cause your eyes have to move faster, right? As you're going faster, they have to actually look through the corner and out towards your exit and identify things faster. It's funny. You mentioned like the, the car video game as opposed to the motorcycle video game. Cause I downloaded two of the kind of the big motorcycle video games this year, ride four and, and MotoGP 2022. And the physics in Ride 4 are so unbelievably bad. You you can't even practice the concepts. You're, you're trying to like, well, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna ride this um at, you know, because you can ride Miller in Ride 4, you can ride our home track, and you can even I even made my little avatar wear my same leathers and put them on my same motorcycle. <laughs> like really. But then I'm riding <laughs> it around and I'm like, well, I'm just gonna practice riding on direction with the video game and see what it does. The video game, you're slowing into the corner and the bike refuses to turn when you're on the brakes. It will not change direction when you're braking in the video game. And I'm like, this is absolutely pointless. If, if anything, playing this video game would make you a worse rider because the only way to get the bike to change direction in the game is to accelerate through the turn. And it that's not what happens. That's not how it works. Now, on the flip side, MotoGP 2022 is way better. It was more fun. You get to go ride, you know, you know, Mugello and you get to go ride like, but the physics were at least more accurate in that. The bike did change direction under the brakes, but they're... I agree with you, mate. There, aside from the eye movement or just the entertainment value of, you know, riding some famous track, there wasn't much really to be learned from playing these these motorcycle video games. I thought they were almost counterproductive. Got a couple of buddies down in Utah um, and elsewhere that, you know, swear that, man, I'm doing, I'm getting such good training and playing ride four. You know, I'm finding my brake markers. I'm finding my turn in points. All these other things. I, I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's funny too because the it's a good game. Like we shouldn't really quirk on the game, but because I can ride our home track, right? We, you can ride. But as a serious it. training tool, no, no. The 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 width of the track, even in the game, is completely wrong. It's the game. The track is significantly narrower in the game than it is in real life. So you're trying to run the line that we would run out there, and it it just doesn't even work because the dimensions of the track are wrong. So all you're really learning is the sequence, left, left, right, right, left, right, left, right? That's all you're really getting from it. 
and you get to make an avatar that looks just like you. And that's very, you know, rewarding, <laughs> narcissistic, <laughs> you know, like I do a lot of, I, I sing the praises all the time about bicycles and motorcycles. Cause I feel like there's so much crossover. And one of my winter survival things is I ride a fat bike. And if you're not familiar with a fat bike, they're these goofy bicycles with these Mickey Mouse balloon tires. They're five inches wide. You run three PSI in them. They're these big squishy tires that you ride on top of snow. And the joy of that is not only are you outside playing, but it's practicing in a very, very low grip environment. And so you're riding these trails on the snow on your fat bike, trail breaking, you know, into these snowy corners. There's so much value in low grip practice. Oh, absolutely. And I imagine, Dave, that you're you're not, you know, squeezing on a ton of brake pressure, right? You're not getting up to 10 bar of brake pressure in those situations. Probably like maybe one or two bars, just super, super light on the brakes and carrying them in there, right? What's what's when you guys run the data on the, the bikes at, at the school, it's really interesting to me that you think your brake pressure is this linear movement, right? But it has all these like little steps and ups and downs and stuff like that. When you're in a low grip environment and you're thinking about what's happening, you can like feel your feet, you're constantly making these little micro adjustments to stay within that very limited amount of traction that you have. The, the ability to adjust, right? That that's the goal. We want to be adjustable riders. Like if you go to the school, if you go, you know, it just as a rider period, that should be your goal. Like lap time is cool, you know, going on massive adventures cool, but like your goal really at the end of the day should be, I want to be the most adjustable rider I can possibly be. Uh, because then you can go do all these things in all these environments and, and add whatever context you like to your riding. But that ability to adjust is just so central to everything we do at the school. And like you said, the, the data is really cool and it shows us exactly what we're talking about, right? Um, I hear all, all the time, or I used to hear all the time that, Hey, you know, once you get in a corner, you should never adjust to anything. Like you should be online perfectly and never have to, to move a muscle to get to that corner. Like, no, that's totally backwards. That's completely wrong and false. And please, if you, if you're one of the people that say this, just stop, just stop doing that. You should actually be adjusting the entire time, right? Um, whether it's brake pressure or steering inputs, lean angle, you know, where your head is positioned, where your eyes are, you should be adjusting constantly. And like you were saying about the brake graph, uh, we'll see, you know, a, a good brake graph is kind of a nice smooth first 5% building up. And then it, as we're finishing up the, the good straight line braking, right? Cause that's what this is, is that straight line braking, building that pressure to come in. We'll see it start to taper off. And then if you have another data trace, you'll see leaning will start to come up as you start to let off the brake pressure. Um, so as you're letting off, it'll be kind of like this, instead of a nice smooth down, it'll be kind of like this and just, you know, tracing up and down because you're going in there going, all right, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Oh, oh, I need a little more brake pressure. Oh, a little less. Oh, I overslowed. Let it back off a little bit. Oh, I need, I need more brake pressure again. And it's just constantly adjusting and it's micro adjustments, right? Like we're talking you know, tenths of a bar of pressure at the, the pointy end of the sport. And we're not just doing that with the brakes. We're also doing it with steering. There's a lovely video on YouTube. Uh, Veritasium did it on how bicycles and motorcycles, two-wheel vehicles basically, um, steer and how they stay upright. And what they did was they actually locked the steering head of the bicycle and said, go ride this in a straight line. Because everybody goes, oh, well, it's, you know, all the, the rotating mass that keeps the bike upright. Well, sure, there is a component of that. But actually what's keeping us upright is that the motorcycle steering head moves. So it's constantly adjusting to stay upright. That's how, we, that's how it works. If we lock the steering head, the, the bicycle, the motorcycle, whatever it is you're, you're on, no longer has the ability to adjust to the situation and will fall over immediately. I went deep dive on this a couple of years ago. There's a bunch of, I think, uh, MIT um, physici physicians, physicists that really tried to figure out how does the two-wheeled vehicle work. And they put little teeny wheels on it, or they would put wheels that up rotated the opposite direction to remove all the gyroscopic forces. They moved, they changed the rake and the trail numbers. They changed the pivot point. They did all these things um, trying to figure out 
how it works. And it was fascinating because we don't really understand everything about how a two-wheeled vehicle works. What we do know is that everything comes down to that pivot point, what we were talking about, which is how counter steering works. That as the thing starts to fall over, it hinges to catch itself. And then it wants to fall the other direction. So even though you think you're riding in a perfectly straight line, the motorcycle is constantly doing this little doobity doobity. And it can be fractions of a degree, but at the end of the day, it's you know, like the, I, I'm pretty sure I'm, I've seen the same stuff you did because at the end of the day, the, the motorcycle is basically a caster wheel up front. Mm-hmm. And if you look, if you think about like, go back to our grocery store example, right? You're pushing a cart around the grocery store. Look down at the at the caster wheels on the on the cart. They're constantly just doing this, wiggling around and adjusting. You're pushing straight. You're basically, you're going in a straight line, but those wheels have to constantly adjust themselves to keep you in that straight line. Like it's the same thing on a bike. So the bike is designed to adjust. We need to be able to adjust ourselves too. And, you know, getting back to this whole theme of, um, you know, surviving the winter, it's all about adjustability. Well, how can I still practice the same tech, same things I need to use on a motorcycle, but adjust based on our context? Well, we can do things like play video games and work on our eyes. We can jump in our car and work on, you know, smooth inputs overall. Um, we can jump on a bicycle and, and, pra- and practice those inputs in a super low grip environment. Um, there's a bunch of different things we can do to adjust our training to to match our needs winter is i don't mind living in a winter environment because winter is this incredible time to kind of catch up on everything to change up the training process what we're working on we practice in different ways but it's also this fantastic time to take care of maintenance issues and um go through things right if you're listening to this and it's a winter environment Right now, you know, pause the podcast, call your local shop and schedule that service that you need, right? Now is the time to go get your bike service. Be, you know, working, I worked at motorcycle shops and in, in the dead of summer, right? We hired like a high school kid to schlep tires and he's just bashing through tires as fast as he can. In the dead of winter, it's probably our top technician changing the tire and he's wiping the wheel down and he cleans the goo off from the sticky wheel weight. You just get a higher attention to detail in the winter and you're likely to get a price discount by taking your bike in the winter. Do you guys have all the other little things you do in the winter to kind of get things ready for the next season? I mean, well, it kind of starts with budgeting. (laughs) So, you know, especially being an active racer, like it kind of all boils down to winter is prep season. Like it's not the off season, it's the prep season. So we're working on, you know, bike maintenance stuff. We're budgeting, figuring out what exactly, you know, the goal is for this season and how we're going to achieve that goal, uh, tweaking the bike a little bit. So next month I'm putting a, a full data collection kit on my R6. That way I can download it after a race or after a practice day and go, okay, look, I'm, you know, at seven bar of pressure here coming into turn one. I really need to be down closer to four bar and carry it, you know, for 40 feet longer. Um, so doing little things like that, tweaking things, um, a lot of reflection as well. Um, and this kind of goes into the mental aspect of the sport is like, okay, now that there's been a couple month gap between racing and where we are now, like, let's look back at what we did well last season, what can improve last season and not just for racing, but just like generally speaking on, on the motorcycle for tools as well. Like there are things that would make our lives easier next season. So winter is when we buy them and we, we reorganize our toolboxes and figure out exactly what we need um, for the rounds. So it's, we're always busy. There's nothing, it's not an off season. Like you said, it's just time to figure out what you need for next year. And one of our big priorities this year is cardiovascular fitness. <laughs> yeah, I think people forget about their their physical fitness during the winter because motorcycle riding is a very, very high intensity sport. And if you just hibernate and don't do anything through the winter, you're going to suffer really, really badly next spring. So get in the gym, do some weightlifting, work on your cardio. You can't stop. Yes. And, you know, at higher elevations, like in Utah, right? Like we're one of the highest elevation tracks in the country. You know, I I get like HPR, PPIR, those places. Cool. But um, things just don't typically work as well in Utah as they work everywhere else. Right. So having that, um, that flexibility to go, hey, I need to improve myself 
in a bunch of different ways, you know, cardiovascular endurance, um, flexibility, mobility, uh, strength, just, just across the board, physical fitness, right? It's going to make my life easier on the bike because I'm sucking in less oxygen. I, I don't, I can't process it as well. Um, as I, I should, I wish would be able to in say Chuckwalla or Button Willow. Absolutely. I think it's also a great time to learn a new thing about your motorcycle. You know, we get a lot of questions about how to, you know, flush your brake fluid or whatever. Winter's the time. If you want to learn a new thing to work on your motorcycle, it is a great time to do that. You can go, you know, watch, go to YouTube university, you know, uh, pick check out a couple videos on, you know, what you want to fix. I'm a YouTube certified master mechanic. <laughs> That's right. YouTube university. We have a, on our discord server, there's a, um, Nick, I'm going to talk about Nick for a second. He, uh, he has an MT09, I think, or an FJ09. And he dropped it a couple years ago and the front end's been twisted ever since. And he was so afraid to do anything about it, but we were talking to him. I was like, Oh, you know, Revzilla just did this great video. Ari Henning shows you what you need to do. And he's like, you know, it's winter. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to take this on. And he went and bought all the tools and he, in his, in his parking garage and he like loosened the forks and everything came back into alignment. And he had this really rewarding experience because he now had kind of the time to take on this thing that he was kind of putting off and putting off and putting off because mm -hmm. he wasn't riding. Now he could fix it. Now he built all that confidence. He knows his motorcycle better. It was a, you know, good job, Nick. So for those of you guys that are listening, this is the second time you need to pause this video and go do something, right? So you already scheduled your maintenance for the winter. Now you need to go online and find a service manual for your motorcycle or motorcycles, plural, because if you're like us, you probably have several in the garage. It'll be anywhere between 50 and hundred bucks. Um, it'll come about this thick but get a printed copy of your motorcycle service manual. It's different than the owner's manual. It will walk you through step-by-step -step with pictures how to pretty much do anything you would possibly imagine to your motorcycle. Hey, do you need to change out gaskets? Cool, it'll tell you how to do that. Do you need to you know, order a specific uh, bearing for your wheel that went bad? Yep, it's in there too. So go ahead and order that. Like that's saved my bacon so many times. Well, and it'll give you the right torque specs as well. You don't want to over torque anything on your bikes. Yeah, exactly right. And it's, it's, I think a service manual, you will save thousands of dollars because you'll be like, oh, this isn't working. I don't know. Let me go to the service manual. Oh, it's three bolts. And I just adjust this. Oh, I can do that. Right. And you have the confidence. You have the same information that the, um, the technician at the motorcycle dealership has. You may not have his experience, but at least you'll have the same information to, to kind of go through that. And if you're looking for good resources on YouTube, um, the place I would recommend starting is a Ari, Ari Hennings channel, right? Uh, also on Revzilla, they do the, the shop manual. Uh, Ari and Zach does, I think mostly it's Ari. And that's that dude has probably forgotten more about motorcycle maintenance than I will ever know. Yeah, the, the quality that Revzilla is cranking out with, with Ari and Zach is really outstanding so yes. if you're not subscribed go listen unsolicited <laughs> you know it's a it's a great resource because it's knowledgeable it's informed you know and a lot of experience great great channel i think winter is also a great time you can go may you kind of touched on this um reorganizing the toolbox reorganizing mm -hmm. the garage yep. or cleaning out the garage yeah unless it's really cold and you have to open the garage door <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, it's so cold it is one of the coldest winters we've ever had like i turned on the little space heaters which you're not supposed to do and like let it warm up in there for like an hour or two before it's even tolerable. Mm -hmm. to, we have yeah. one of the, we don't have a space heater. We have uh, oh, one of the ceramic. It? No, it's not, it's not ceramic. It's infrared. Okay. Yeah. 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 Infrared heater. We just kind of let that. Yeah. So we point it at the floor. So the floor heats up and then it kind of just radiates heat from there. Um, so it works out pretty decently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It works out pretty well. I've been shopping for a mini split to put in the garage so it'll stay a little cooler in the summer and a little warmer in the winter. Nice. And and apparently they're not that much money. Like three grand, you can do a mini split in your garage to kind of keep it temperate all year round. Speaking of temperate garages and motorcycles, um, one of the reasons we have, actually probably the biggest reason we have a heater in our garage period is because of tires. Um, so I have several sets of slicks in my garage. Slicks and tractor tires don't respond well to being kept in an extremely cold environment. Um, street tires, for the most part, are usually pretty okay with that. Um, I think Ari actually just did a really good video on that. Or somebody did. I forget. It might have been Ari. Yeah, it was Ari. 
yeah. So if you have slicks in your, you know, 20 degree Fahrenheit garage, you may want to consider bringing those inside. Like they're not designed for that. Something else you can do to kind of entertain yourself. I thought this was kind of fun. Um, every manufacturer that I looked up has a virtual museum tour you can do from your computer. That's and cool. Yeah, like you can go to um, Japan and you can tour Yamaha. You can go to Italy and you can tour Ducati. And they're really fun. It's like a nice way to kind of blow an hour thinking about motorcycles and learning more about what's out there. That'd be cool. But I thought we could talk about too, um, if you must ride, if you're one of those people who's like, I got to get on the motorcycle, it's cold. I thought we could talk about some of the things you kind of should be aware of if you're going to go head out and ride in the cold. I personally don't do it. I don't enjoy riding in the cold. I don't find it rewarding or satisfying. There's other things I can do. But some people have to get that fixed. What can they do? What, what can they be mindful of? Uh, I mean, first thing to be mindful of is, you know, the chances are your tires were not designed to work very well in that environment. Um, they'll tolerate them for the most part. You know, modern tires are fantastic, but they definitely weren't designed to be ridden in the cold. They're designed to heat up, right? So the more we heat heat our tire as we get into that, uh, that operating temperature range, the better they adhere to the, the pavement surface, right? From a physics standpoint, your grip is made up of two things, pressure and uh, the coefficient of friction between two surfaces. In this case, rubber and asphalt or rubber and dirt or ice and rubber, depending on where you're at. Um, and the coefficient of friction between a hot tire on hot pavement is much higher than that of a cold tire on ice. So you physically have less grip available. So when we're talking about 100 points, that hundred points of lean may be right here, right? It may be just a couple of degrees off of bolt upright. So just be aware of that. Um, one of the things we can do is because we have less um, grip between the, the tires and the road surface, right? Because the tires are cold. We have to really be cognizant of adding load to the tire because if we don't have that friction, we can kind of make up for it with load and pressure. Um, so that's the first thing to be aware of is just reduced grip, can't lean over, no abrupt moves. Like if you really want to train um, to be smooth, fantastic environment for it because it'll teach you very quickly. Um, the next thing we can do is buy good quality heated gear, right? If Especially the electric stuff that you know plugs into your motorcycle, buy it. Um, I've tried like the battery powered heated gloves with um, shields on in front of my hands and, uh, an extra thermal layer on my hands below that, just you know, commuting back and forth to law school. And it was terrible. Like just, just go ahead and pony up. If you're really serious about this pony up and buy the plug-in electric heated stuff. Well, and even with those, you need to remember another thing that does not work well in the cold is us. We physically do not work well in the cold. Your blood goes out of your arms, out of your legs, and it set, uh, situates itself in your core. Well, how do you control a motorcycle? With your arms and your legs. So if you don't have blood there, you're going to start losing feeling, you're losing dexterity, and you will not be able to control your motorcycle as well, even with heated gear, because you're still going to lose some of that blood flow to your hands. So just keep that in mind. And and our thinking as well. It, it also affects... we. Um... Um, we, it reduces concentration, not it reduces dexterity, which is you're talking about. It reduces concentration. It's harder to think clearly when you're cold. It increases fatigue. All these things that are kind of detrimental to riding a motorcycle well. Which is why we don't do it. <laughs> which is why we don't do it. If we do need to ride in the winter, go do, go do like the Champ Street School or the Champ School in Vegas. It's warm there. Or you guys were just in Miami. That was, yeah, that was supposedly very warm there. Vegas still gets pretty chilly in the winter, but only really in the mornings. Like by the afternoon, it's totally fine. But traveling to a traveling to a warmer environment to go for a ride is a great way to get the fix in the dead of winter. And you know why not do it with? I I think yeah, a track day or a track school. Yeah, take a dirt bike, go down to Arizona, explore. It's warm there. Actually, winter is winter is fantastic for dirt biking. Um, you know, we have we have a couple of dirt bikes that we go out and zip around on. Haven't been able to do it lately just because the ground has been too wet and too snowy and too icy well that and i decided to hurt myself so what did you do what happened i 
I sprained my ankle really badly, so it's been about two months since I've been able to do anything. Just went to the gym for the first time yesterday. Yeah. Ugh, sprained ankles are terrible. Yeah. Did it swell up like the size of a grapefruit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was bad. Nice black bruise down it. It was great. The best part was, though, she was on crutches for a while. So every time she'd walk around, I could just go, hey, May. She was mad. <laughs> how, how did you how did you uh, sprain your ankle i was playing volleyball so yep staying in shape over the winter and it bit me in the ass <laughs> yeah in the ankle yeah in the ankle did you crash your ankle man i did i crashed my ankle <laughs> nice nice ah injuries yeah that's the other great thing about winter we didn't think about that you can recover from any injuries you may have sustained over the summer allow yourself to heal and recuperate yep because uh mrs canyon chaser we were mountain biking um best mountain biking of the year september the colors it was beautiful and she had a minor crash went over the handlebars and broke her thumb and so she's been dealing with that um but it's winter and you're like, okay, well, it'll, I'll be good to go by spring. Yeah. I'm not missing out on too much. You hope. So if you are going to get hurt, get hurt in the end of the, of the end of the season. So you have winter to recover. I don't know how people who live in warm environments do it. I really feel bad for these people that live in warm environments. They don't have all these opportunities to like fix things and to heal and recover and to practice from a different level. How do they yeah. do it? These poor people that live in warm environments. It must be terrible to, you know have the opportunity to go ride whenever you feel like that's got to be yeah, terrible. I, I don't know how they i think it would lose its magic if i could just ride whenever i wanted it wouldn't be special anymore i wouldn't be like i gotta get this ride in in the dead of summer in i don't know arizona i don't think you're gonna want to go riding it's 120 degrees there's your downtime right there <laughs> hey your tires will be warm that's true your tires will be warm right i think you're like you always go back to like Southern California because like the roads there are perfect. The temperature is always perfect. Like, what's the fun of that? <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> have you met the drivers though? What was it? Someone there was a, a reel on Instagram I think yesterday about a cop that like kind of gets really irritated. <laughs> yes. Like, like, get over. <laughs> um, it's not your job to slow down traffic. That's my job. I thought it was great. Anyway, 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 anyway. Um, our trivia contest. We have the winner of our trivia contest, which we asked last time, what does, what purpose does the rear brake serve? I believe was the question. And Alex, what, what does the rear brake do for us? Well, it does a couple of things for us. First, it slows down the motorcycle. Obviously, that's the function of a brake. Uh, but we can also control um, our, our suspension's rate of rebound in the rear, right? So... If we think about the way the, the rear brake is mounted on the, the rear swing arm, it's separated from the actual chassis itself, right? So um, you'll see a couple of videos that we, we put out from Champ School uh, of us pushing down on the seat and then using the rear brake to slow that seat as it comes up. We're actually slowing the rate at which the chassis rises. And so we can control our rear rebound that way, which is fantastic for a couple of different places, like coming up over a crest, right? We can control that rate of rebound. Um, or if we have a, a, a passenger on the back of us, or if we have a bunch of weight for luggage, we can control that um, that shock, right? Um, we can also kind of just tighten up a line just a little bit without adding, you know, this is more of the pointy end of things, um, whether it's pace or grip or just how tight some of these corners are. Um, but if we're in a really super tight, steep corner and we don't really want to add more weight to the front we can actually drag a little bit of that rear brake because it'll still slow us down radius equals miles an hour without really transferring a whole bunch of weight to the front tire and risking overloading it so rear brake is a phenomenal tool for a bunch of different things um, it's also great for anti-wheelie if you're on a big big fast powerful bike that likes to wheelie a lot now which brake is more important alex the front or the rear brake like the front brake. The front brake's like your wingman, right? Like he's like your best buddy. But your rear brake is more like the guy that you don't you don't call your rear brake when you you need someone to bail you out in the middle of the night. Uh, yeah. I mean, we we want to focus on mastering the front brake first, right? Like that's that's where our, our money is really made. But the rear brake is a phenomenal tool, and it's something that we'd have fairly high up on our priority list, especially if you're on you know longer wheelbase bike or you have you know your sweetie on the back. Um, because at that point, you know, when we're doing two uprides, we're 
almost 50% rear brake in terms of braking force. I mean, think about, we have extra weight there. Uh, if you're on a, a big bagger, right? A lot of rear brake pressure because you have the extra weight back there. If you're on an RS660, hey, how much rear brake do you even use? Barely anything, none, half right. the time. Yeah, just a little bit of pressure, not even a press. You're just putting a little pressure back there. Yeah, and I'm reminded of Sylvan Guntoli did a video uh, a couple of years back on the rear brake, and he said, you know, we're in World Superbike. He won that and never once touched the rear brake. And then he went to MotoGP and was completely unrideable without using the rear brake. So it's very situational dependent, right? It's, it's all about what context you're asking. And, and we should mention, if you're looking for winter motorcycle content, Sylvan Guntoli's YouTube channel is a treasure trove of just spectacular uh, information. Very, you know, very, very credible information. Because you're talking to a MotoGP guy, right? Like we all. Yeah, we all watch his channel religiously. Yeah, it's fantastic. And that he's willing to share this information, right? And he does it in French and then he does it in English. So check out Sylvan Guntoli's channel. So our winner of our trivia contest, um, we had a bunch of submissions and we drew at random. And Fred P, I will be in contact with you. Congratulations, you won a certificate to champ you. And uh, if you haven't taken the course, by all means, use it. But we kind of hope you give it to someone else who hasn't had it yet. So um, I'll be reaching out to you and give you your fabulous prize. Um, what is our trivia question for next time? I would like someone to explain the difference between advice and technique. So give me a, a good definition. No more than like three sentences, we'll say what the difference is between advice and technique. You don't have to illustrate each one, but summarize it to us. And uh, you can just email the answer. Just email it to heydave at canyonchasers.com and uh, send us your answer. And on our next episode, we will give a drawing. Um, since it is the winter and we can't ride, I thought it'd be fun to talk about motorcycles that we can't ride that we would love to ride. Like dream bikes that are... Right there, the Aprilia. The RSV4, that's my favorite bike. Can I say that? I'm wearing a, wearing a Yamaha school shirt. <laughs> you can, but you could own one. Well, I mean, that's the beauty of it, right? It's like, I, I could own it. Yeah, it's as close as you can. I think it's it's as close as you can get to a World Superbike MotoGP bike, that Aprilia. It is. Oh, it's so much fun. It's so good. Yeah, I, I can't wait to, it's really hard. I bought that bike right at the end of the summer. Or the, yeah, and now it's just sitting in the garage cold. I'm like, I just want to Oh, I mean, so I remember the last what last round at UMC uh, that we were there for the track day and you and I were playing around. I was just sitting there like, man, this guy, <laughs> he's, he's got this beautiful bike. It just sounds so good. It does sound so good. And it crackles when you the quick shifter. It's a very visceral Oh, no, I, 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 was, I was paying attention. <laughs> it, was a, <laughs> it was nice. I was jealous. But like, would you? Would you guys be interested in ever if the opportunity, would you ride a MotoGP bike? If someone said, here's, here's the Aprilia MotoGP or the Yamaha MotoGP bike, you can go do two laps. No. Is that something you'd be interested in? No. Why wouldn't you? Um, well, the fact that you have to be a MotoGP rider to not die on one of those bikes, that that's the start. <laughs> I mean, it's, you're not going to die on the bike, but I'll be might. but <laughs> I would feel bad riding a MotoGP bike because I would be doing the bike a disservice, right? <laughs> like, who is this idiot on this bike? Like, just punk I've spoken to people who have ridden them before, and I'm told that the brakes on them are so insanely powerful that it feels like you're rippling the pavement underneath the front tire, and that you'll go to the brakes and the bike will slow so profoundly that you have to accelerate just to get to the beginning of the corner again. Like, that's how powerful the brakes are. Now, a Moto3 bike. I would ride a Moto3 bike. Now we're talking. They're physically pretty little, aren't they? Like, I rode a Morawaki. Uh, a good friend of the channel, Brian, he had a Morawaki for a while. I'm, I'm not a big guy. My knees hurt so bad from being folded at that level on that little Morawaki. I don't know if I could fit on a Moto3 bike. But you could try. I could try. Mm-hmm. And they look You're good. smaller than I am. I would, I would, I would try a Moto three bike before I bought a GP bike. Really? You, I, I would. You yeah. have younger knees than I do too, so maybe no. That's no I doesn't. really don't. <laughs> I, yeah, you're both veterans, right? None of our, our knees and our backs are all destroyed. No. 
no, I think so. Would I ride a MotoGP bike? Probably, if only just to do like the check the box bucket list thing, right? But my concern would really be that, you know, at that level, the suspension and chassis and brakes and everything are designed for a certain pace. And like I discovered on my R6 this season, if you're not at that pace that it was designed for, it doesn't really feel that fun. Like, sure, you get the rush of adrenaline. Cool. I'm on a fast bike. This is awesome. But how fun would it actually be to ride, right? Or like, would you be so afraid that you're on this million dollar motorcycle that is pure unobtainable? Oh, no, I wouldn't care about that. Like if 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 somebody gave me the, you know, the keys, quote unquote, to a MotoGP bike and we're like, hey, just go take it for a spin. I am operating that thing with the assumption that they will cover any crash damage. <laughs> <laughs> like not that not that obviously the goal would be to crash the thing. Um and yeah, I'd still take it no more than 80% of what I'm capable of, which is, you know, the bike's 10% at that point. I, I had the opportunity to ride a, a Desmo Cedici like 15, 18 years ago. The Ducati's homologated. They didn't really homologate. They sold like a couple hundred of their MotoGP bikes. And they, you know, but it was a street bike, right? It had lights and it had cast iron rotors. It didn't have the carbon-carbon brakes. It was so glorious. And I just like rode it around the block. But it revved so fast, and it it was it was pretty incredible. Like if I could own any ridiculous motorcycle, it would probably be that or a Briton. And I don't know if a Briton like there's only like eight of those in the world or something like that. So to kind of put it in perspective for me, the MotoGP question. Um, so I got an opportunity to ride a bunch of Aprilias um, at Laguna Seca last summer. And, you know, the RSV4, the 2.0 and everything. And the RSV4, like just the, the RSV4 factory at Laguna Seca. Like, first of all, mind-blowing experience, right? Because the first time I've ever been there. Uh, but just the amount of power that bike puts down. There's a 217 horsepower at the at the crank or something like that. Just something absolutely silly. And then to think a MotoGP bike probably has an extra 100 horse on top of that and is lighter. Yeah, they're over 300. Yeah. Like, I... I I couldn't get everything out of the RSV4 to begin with. What on earth would prepare me to try to get a fraction of what the MotoGP bike is capable of? Like, that's where I'm coming from. Where I'm like, yeah, I, I could, but nah, not really that interested. There's the novelty of it. The, uh, a friend of mine said, and I've always quoted him on this. He's like, I've never met a motorcycle I didn't want to ride. I've met lots of bikes I didn't want to own, but never a bike I didn't want to ride. And I think like, I'm not really a cruiser guy, but my dad had a Road King. I thought that thing was so much fun. I would never own one, but man, I thought it was fun to ride. He had like the the big wide handlebars, and he just kind of sat back. And as long Which as he eats up the miles, yeah. Well, it, it was it was spectacular at 45 miles an hour. Anything above or below, it wasn't that great. <laughs> but like 45 miles an hour, it was it was glorious, you know. And you're just kind of trundling along and smelling the flowers, and it was. But yeah, I would never own one. <laughs> I would be bored of it pretty quick. Yeah, I would love to. Now, in terms of like competition bikes that I would love to try out, like a Dakar rally bike. Oh, oh yes. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I'd those? be all over that. Right. And but for whatever reason, like the same principle applies. Like I am nowhere near capable of running that thing to its potential. But because I just don't know enough about the rally side of the house, like my lizard brain's like, yes, let's just do it. You know, I just don't know what I don't know. Whereas the MotoGP bike, I've watched enough MotoGP and seen my lap times in comparison to like how these guys operate their lives. Like, nah, like, I don't know if my <laughs> ego could take that. <laughs> well, did, did you guys watch the car this year? It was... A little bit of it, yeah. Oh, the, the sand dune uh, days. You're just watching it. It's so pretty. It's like really, it's so. And those guys are just flying off those dunes. Wheelies and jumping and like, oh, it's pretty. It's magic. Yeah. I always let like the Dakar's hilarious, right? Because they have this big crash and like out come a bunch of guys out of nowhere and they're helping put it. And you're like, there's nobody out here. It's nothing but sand dunes and the guy crashes and all of a sudden there's people there helping him out. <laughs> if memory serves, they have five helicopters just for that purpose. They have like, I think it's seven helicopters for film, five helicopters for um, like search and rescue stuff, help like that. And then like a fleet of trucks, which 
like let's be honest like i love motorcycles but the coolest vehicles of the car are the trucks oh yeah i freaking those hands down like they're jumping those yeah <laughs> the com- uh what are they called the kamaz or kamax or something like that yeah yeah may what what would be your dream bike that you would really love to ride besides the moto 3 bike well that you mentioned? i don't really have one i'll be honest like i would like to ride adventure bikes because it's something i'm interested in getting into but i've never done um but i love my bike i love my 660 I did all the research in the world before I bought that. I dreamed about it for a really long time. And every time I get on that bike, I fall in love with it again. So at this point in time, I have no desire to ride anything else because I just love that bike that much. It's that good. So no desire to ride like a crazy vintage bike, like Vincent Black Shadow or something from yesteryear that always, you know, an old Triumph Bonneville or anything like that? No, honestly, the creature comforts of the new bikes, like, I don't think I would enjoy riding an older bike. Like, yeah, it might be cool, but maybe ride it for like 10 minutes and that's it. That, yeah. Yeah, I I restored a Triumph Bonneville in high school. I really had like this hankering for an old Bonneville. And uh, I was riding an FCR 600 at the time, which was a relatively modern bike. And I put this this Bonneville back together and uh, it was horrible it was, i hated every minute of it it was so flexible you would go to counter steer and you could feel the flex go down the handlebar into the triple clamp down the fork into the uh, into the axle through the spokes and then it started to change direction and the brakes that's character dave <laughs> character the brakes worked on geologic terms it didn't really slow down so much as eroded speed like it was just they were it was i was so heartbroken and disappointed i put all this energy into this thing and i'm like i i hate it i hate everything about it well this is why like i have no desire to ever own a classic car right a resto mod of a classic car absolutely all day but i mean you just can't beat modern technology right like what about electric bikes would you be interested in riding electric bikes I've yeah never had the i think that'd be yeah. fun absolutely yeah uh, i was actually chatting with uh, engineers from zero motorcycles at laguna um last summer and just you know the what they've put into that bike in terms of, you know, manpower and brain power and just engineering is tremendous. And the fact that they're constantly updating everything they've done, um, you know, they're, they're kind of spearheading it between, you know, zero and Damon and all these other companies that are springing up. Like there's some really cool technology coming out. There's one in China or South Korea that even has a three speed transmission on it. So you could still shift what? gears. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, Ducati is coming out with a race bike now for Moto E. Oh, they are. Did you see that? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Ducati is entering Moto E. That's great. That is great. Moto E, have you watched many of those races? They are a solid like 15 minutes. Like it's not a big commitment. And it's fun racing because they are so close together. I mean, that's all the batteries can do. (laughs) (laughs) But it's entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that those guys are, are doing that with as heavy as those bikes are. Like, Compared to a MotoGP bike, the Moto E bikes are significantly heavier because the batteries. Um, and so everything gets hotter, the brakes, the tires, everything. And just the, the ability to engineer around those problems and overcome them is just tremendous. But, you know, um, the very long way of answering your very short question is, yes, I would ride a Moto or an mm-hmm. electric bike. I think the novelty of riding just something random is there. But I guess if you define riding as like actually riding, not just like the novelty of trundling around the neighborhood on it or whatever just to say you've done it there's a big difference there because you know they say the older you get the more you zero in on on what you really love to do and i think there's a certain point of that with writing you know there's you zero in on the kind of writing you enjoy writing you know like you know when you first start off you don't really know so you buy a bike and you're like well i think i like cruisers and I discovered really quickly, because I grew up in a cruiser family, I don't enjoy cruisers. A, they hurt my back, thank you, Uncle Sam and the Army, but I just think they're kind of boring. I, they're not, they don't lean, they don't accelerate, they don't stop, they, you just go 45 miles an hour and smell the flowers, and like, this is neat, <laughs> yeah. Although, like, the, some of the modern cruisers, right, are, are coming actually quite a long ways, and there's now a kind of a performance baggers category that's coming out. Um, you know, thanks in, in huge part to Moto America's King of the Baggers series, right? We got, you know, Kyle Wyman and those guys running around and making baggers cool again. And, you know, some of the parts that he's helped design um, and engineer, you know, well, all the Wyman brothers really at this point, 
um, are super fun, right? He's got a video of him taking his, I believe it's a road glide special around Laguna Seca, like his, his street bike, right? Not his, not his race prep bike, but his street bike, uh, around Laguna. He was putting out a very respectable lap time on it. Um, and it's just hilarious to watch the thing. And I mean, hilarious in you know the, the best way possible because it's, here's this thing that shouldn't be able to do this, that is able to do it. So the only thing, my only complaint with the bagger class is that I think they all should be required to run music, you know, because that's what you see them doing on the street. <laughs> I think they should all have their music just cranked to the nines as they're out there. I think I'm really sad they're just not doing that. We always joke around about, you know, what do the guys have in their saddlebags? Because their saddlebags have to be functional. Oh, they do. Yeah. And for the class rules, the saddlebags have to be functional. So like at one point, uh, I believe it was, I don't remember what round. It was one of the last rounds of baggers this last year. Uh, one of Kyle's bags actually opened up and the top was just sitting there flopping around. Like, do they have their rain gear in there? Like the rain gear, maybe? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he was wearing it actually that round. In fact, uh, I think it was the wet race. It was. Yeah, watching those guys, you know, throw 650-pound bikes sideways coming into corners in the rain. Like, I wish I was that good. <laughs> well, it, it it goes to show, too, and, like, we're, that the, it does, the motorcycle doesn't know, right? The, motorci the motorcycle just responds to the inputs we give it. And it's not that this, this is how you ride an adventure bike, May. This is how we ride a ninja 400 this is how we ride a bat we it's the motorcycle they're all going to handle the relatively the same to the same inputs yeah i mean at the very pointy end of the sport there are going to be slight differences right in you know line choice and things like that and just you know some some techniques to get a thing moving around like kyle on his bagger is going to use a lot more rear brake than he would if he was on his ducati i would imagine right if he was if he was here he'd probably say the same thing um but at the end of the day it's all about loading the tire before work the tire it's all about respecting 100 points you know getting to the slow point getting away from it as quickly as we can um radius equals miles an hour. it's all about these fundamental concepts and as long as what we're doing matches those concepts right and it's not just true on motorcycles it's true on everything you know we talked about how we get around, along in the winter right we find a way to practice those fundamental concepts you know, to kind of bring this this all back to our initial topic what you're doing doesn't matter as much as how you're doing it. At the end of the day, that's that's it. If you can if you can practice smooth application of you know your hands, your fingers in calligraphy, cool. You're being smooth. You're practicing that smooth input. If you can practice um, you know focusing on a task at work and putting all of your focus onto that, cool. You're practicing focus. If you're moving your eyes up and down in traffic, or if you're moving your eyes, you know, up and down as you're looking at a piece of wood as it goes through um, a surface planer, cool. We're moving our eyes. It's what you're doing isn't nearly as important as how you're doing it. I think that's hundred. When I was teaching basic rider courses, you would always see like the student came in. They they would be a terrible rider, but they were smooth, and they could get away with crazy bad techniques. Because they were just unbelievably smooth. And you're like, ah, how do I coach someone who's smooth but doing the complete wrong things and they're getting away with it because they're smooth? But if the you know the speed comes up or the grip goes down, suddenly it's going to start to kind of fall apart. But at least they're smooth. At least they're smooth. All right, guys. I think uh, anything else you guys want to talk about? Like we, we've had a good conversation here talking about winter doldrums. Um, we should, before I forget, do you think we could get Kyle on? Do you think we, Kyle would agree to come on and talk about what it's like to race a bagger? I don't see why not. I think that would be a really fun discussion. Just like, what is that thing like to ride? Kyle, if you're listening to this, <laughs> you better get on here. Yeah, I think we'd love to have you on. I think, you know, we, we heat that Jerry ride with the pro Jerry video just came out where Kyle and that was, again, another, I'll put a link in the description. Make sure you go watch that video. It's fantastic. But Kyle talking about that too was really cool. Yeah. And, you know, Cody is also a fantastic person to ask about that. Um, Cody Wyman is, you know, Kyle's younger brother and one of our lead instructors as well. And Cody is the test rider for the Harley Davidson race program. So another great guy to ask about that. Uh, Cody also teaches at the Corvette school. Oh, really? Um, so if you want to really get 
someone's uh, opinion who matters about the differences and similarities between cars and motorcycles. Like he's a pretty fantastic guy for that. So we should, we should see if we can make that happen. I think that'd be fun because we have a whole bunch of people that we're trying to get on this podcast. It's just the scheduling has been somewhat of a challenge. We have some really exciting guests that uh, we just have to like get the scheduling figured out, but we should add them to the list. That'd be really cool to talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if you guys in the comments have anybody you'd love for us to talk about or any topics you'd like us to discuss, you know, leave a comment, send us a note. Um, we're always open to suggestions. All right. That's awesome. All right, guys. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. And uh, we'll see you next time on the breaking zone. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs>